Happy Black Friday, everybody. So we are on pre-record today, but I wanted to give you guys a special. I'm home with the family. I'm with Tanya Tay. I'm with the kids. We just had a delicious Thanksgiving dinner, but that doesn't mean that I wouldn't be here with you today. So what we're going to do is I recently spoke at Ohio State University. We did a virtual discussion with the kids. We had a great Q&A. We had some trolls, some left-wing trolls, and we're going to play the entire thing for you to let you know how it went down. And it's going to be a very special episode. But before we do, I want to remind you that today is the day that the Black Friday sale commences for America Fest. Go and secure your tickets immediately. Amfest.com. Utilize promo code POSO. You will save huge on your general admission tickets and your VIP tickets. The sale only runs Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and through Cyber Monday. And then we're done. So don't even be trying to come to me on Tuesday. Don't come to me next week. Don't come to me a week before and say, oh, I want the tickets, Poso. Can you help me? No, 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 no. You got your chance right now. Shoot your shot. Amfest.com, promo code Poso. Let's get into it. Well, thank you so much for having me, OSU. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard to a very special evening with Jack Posobiec, the host of Human Events Daily and a Turning Point USA contributor. Uh, I apologize for not being able to be there with you in person, just with uh, with everything going on this week and uh, schedule got changed around and things got moved around. And though I will note, I will note that I am here with you tonight and not down at Mar-a-Lago. So take that for for what you will. But I am here tonight and I'm here to speak with you because I wanted to keep this uh, keep this commitment with you. And when you make a commitment, you really do have to keep a commitment because we live in a world. We live in a world of a lot of chaos, a lot of tumult, a lot of crisis. And one of the things that we talk about on the show very often is this thing called the fourth turning. And, uh, you know, the way they have the camera set up, I can't see the audience. But if you guys have heard of the fourth turning, it's essentially this theory that goes back to Strauss and Howe. they wrote this book in the 1990s, two books, actually, one book called Generations and one book called The Fourth Turning. And they believed in this idea called generation theory. And generation theory was that every generation through essentially 20 year cycles is going through and putting society through the same 80 year cycles that they've been able to extrapolate from history. And what they call these cycles are, are turnings. Um, and that it usually happens pretty much with that around every 20 years. So of course you might be familiar with, you know, the four generations that are, you know, that are around, so, you know, you, you will say like, well, okay, there's the baby boomers, there's Gen X, there's millennials, and then there's Zoomers, right? So everyone's talking about those four generations all the time. Well, what's interesting is that generational theory fits perfectly within Strauss-Howe generational theory, that nomenclature that we use all the time about the four types of generations. And then the interesting piece of this, though, is how those generations were molded by the events that affected them in their early childhood, this is what Strauss Howe believed, that those events then lead them to when they become into positions of power themselves, when they go on to become leaders of society, business, culture, uh, thought leaders, et cetera, what have you, music, that those same beliefs and those same uh, pressures then have an effect on the way that they wield whatever type of political cultural and economic power that they have when they're older. So one of the ones that you'll, you'll hear about a lot is people say, well, baby boomers have all this money. 
and baby boomers are used to the world being totally prosperous. And because when they were born, the world was prosperous and everything was great. And America was, everyone was making so much money and you could get a job. And it was this idea of you would get your job right out of college. You would stay at that job for 30 to 35 years. You'd work there until you were 65. You would retire. You'd get your social security. Boom, you got social security. And if you're lucky, social security and a pension. And then you would get out and, and pop off. Myself, I'm a prior Navy intelligence officer. And in the military, there was this idea that you could stay. And this is actually changing. But there had been, and that, that kind of ties into what we're talking about tonight, that that ties into uh, you would stay for 20 years, 20 years, you get your pension, boom, you're out. So what a lot of people would do is they would graduate high school, 18 years old, join the military immediately, boom, 20 years. Now you're 38, 38 years old, getting a pension. Then you can go and work for the government another 10 years. Now you're 48, you're getting two pensions or you're working for some company, you do another 20 years or so, you're only 58. So you're still under that general retirement age, but you're essentially making enough money to live for the rest of your life. And this was the economy that baby boomers were born into. And so to go to bring it back to Strauss, how there are four cycles, right? There are these four cycles that seem to uh, play out over and over throughout American history in 80 year cycles, four periods. So here are the four turnings, as they call it, to use their nomenclature. The first is the high turning. This is an era of building, nation uniting over some crisis. Uh, they've just defeated the enemy. They've just come together, been cohesive as a country. They're now building together. There's a strong conformity. There's a strong belief in family. There's a strong belief in community. Then you, and, and really the last period of that we see here in the United States is the 1950s. Uh, then you move into an awakening period. This awakening is the children of that earlier period. They then become rebellious. They then start attacking those institutions that were created during the high period. So uh, this, this incoming generation, and, and you, you can see this with the sexual revolution in the 1960s going into the 1970s. Uh, you can see this with attacks on essentially, quote unquote, you know, the government itself, the institution of law enforcement, the ability of Western, of Western society in a whole. And you're seeing, by the way, the fruits of people who grew up with those beliefs now currently being in power. Because what's the third period? The unraveling. So the third turning is the unraveling. This is your harvest and separation period. Listen to this. The institutions become weak and distrusted. Political polarity crests with warring ideological factions and individualism peaking. Economy booms, but there are destructive underpinnings. Concerns of minority groups dominate the focus of national discourse and technological innovations make people feel more interconnected than ever. I argue that we are actually in the unraveling stage right now. We're in an unraveling cycle, but we are rapidly moving into the fourth turning. What is the fourth turning? That is an era of crisis. It's an era that has always been, been, been outlined and underpinned by bloodshed. And if you go back throughout United States history, um, in their book, by the way, if you go, if you go purchase the book, Strauss Howe, it goes all the way back to the 1400s. It goes back to essentially to the dawn of the Renaissance or even pre-Renaissance uh, Middle e medieval Europe. And so if you just go back in US history though, 80 year cycles, right? Well, 80 years before was World War II. 80 years before World War II is the Civil War. 80 years before the Civil War is the American Revolution. And so World War II was almost exactly 80 years ago. 
And so the contention is, are we rife? Are we rife for another conflict right now? Well, I hear a lot of people talking about a new American civil war, a second American civil war. Some people even talk about national divorce, blue states, red states. I'm not someone who believes in that. I'm not someone who agrees with that because uh, quite frankly, I don't believe it could ever be done peacefully. Just to answer the question, I don't think that something like that would ever be able to be done peacefully. Um, but at the same time, just go look at what happened in Poland this morning, right? So you had a situation and we're still, still in the fog of war in terms of all of this. There's an influx of crisis in Eastern Europe. Russia has invaded Ukraine. Ukraine's fighting back with assistance from NATO, massive assistance through um, uh, weapons, through money. Some of that money is being laundered through groups like FTX, this, this path-through organization, which to me looks like it clearly had some kind of intelligence ties, uh, obviously had money laundering ties going on there. The guy's is essentially going, uh, hopefully going to jail for that at some point when the investigation is continued, this sand bank and freed. But the larger point is, is what he represents and what that, that entity of FTX truly was. Um, we've seen banks in the past be involved with covert operations all the way back to Iran-Contra, back to the cartels, the Medellin cartels, Pablo Escobar. I mean, these types of things have been going on throughout the United States intelligence agencies for uh, generations now. And so when you look at something like FTX and the fact that it's tied to so many of these top players like Tony Blair, like Bill Clinton, uh, it really makes you open the question and beg the question of who exactly was benefiting from this by allowing it to go forward. And keep in mind that, that we only know about the collapse of FTX because apparently this guy was, was not only skimming funds, which of course, you know, banks do that, um, but he was using it to, to prop up his girlfriend's uh, hedge fund and the whole thing went completely under. Um, if, if, you, if, you're, if your outflows do not match your inflows at some point someone, and people start to call you on that, you are going to get caught, which I do laugh because, you know, I, I say if you, uh, you know, if you think what FTX did was bad, wait till you find out what your bank's doing, right? Wait till you find out what Wall Street's doing. But at the same time, because of the international ties here, specifically with the ties to Ukraine at the beginning of the war, that it was chosen as this anointed uh, financial institution for the purposes of investing and bringing these, these uh, FTT coins into Ukraine, be able to donate them. You know, it, it really opens up this whole black box, which probably goes into uh, a number of coins beyond FTX. I mean, I, I would look at some of the stable coins, for example, but just crypto in general as a huge, huge, absolute uh, playground for the intelligence services from not only just the US, but uh, across NATO, across the Five Eyes, and, and even other countries to be able to launder money in a way that you don't even need a bank anymore. You don't even need, uh, you know, the money guy flying the planes back and forth like Barry Seal used to do for the Medellin cartel and the CIA. You, you can just run it through crypto and then you just need some guy to be the front of your operation. So sure, this guy, Sam Bankman fried, if this indeed is true, uh, well, sure, he, you know, he probably had no idea, right? He's the fall guy. He was set up to fall and now fall he shall. And we're seeing the, uh, the outcomes of that play out, but the people and the players that were above all of this, well, they'll never be caught and they'll never be brought to justice. But, but going back to that idea of the fourth turning, because we're in a situation now with, with Russia that, you know, look, you've got a couple of rockets that have struck Poland and Poland is NATO territory. Now for me, 
being someone who's from a Polish family, um, that's, that's close to home, right? I've got family that lives in that border region between Poland and Ukraine. And in fact, when we visited Ukraine uh, over the summer, we, I actually stayed in my family village, my last name Posobik, in Polish, you would say Posobiec. And our village is very close to Lezhysk, um, which is really, really close. I mean, we stayed in their village the night before we went to the train station and then took the train further on into Lviv and then on to uh, Odessa. And then we actually took a car to Mykolaiv. But the situation is very close, is very caustic, and the tension is very high. Now, it, it seems as though that, that some of the initial shock and response to this uh, has come down. They're opening an investigation. They're going to see whether or not this would uh, this was delib a deliberate act. I don't necessarily think that Russia would strike a random grain silo in some remote town if it was truly making a move on on NATO. I mean, you think they'd attack some kind of, I don't know, one of, one of the railway stations or one of the supply lines, something that was of more military significance to, to the war front. But it does open up this question. It opens up this question of the fourth turning, a bloody crisis. We've all been talking about World War III so much lately, and it's gotten to the point where it's been completely normalized. You know, during the Cold War, by the way, if, you know, go ask, you know, your parents or if, or if you remember back then, uh, people talked about World War III all the time. People have been talking about World War III since the end of World War II, since 1945. And I don't think that after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, if you had told someone, well, it's going to be 80 years and we'll go 80 years without someone using a nuclear weapon, they would have said, that's crazy. We're not going to go eight months without uh, someone using a nuclear weapon, because once this technology gets out, it's going to proliferate. But what was interesting about nuclear weapons is that when uh, various world powers were able to receive this technology, they actually had sort of an inverse, inverse effect that we haven't seen before in the world of warfare, where a new technology that is capable of great and global destruction and widespread destruction actually creates the conditions for peace more so than more war because if and if you notice the the permanent members of the security council are all the nuclear nations that if if the united states uses nukes then russia can respond if the russia uses nukes then then uh then the united states can respond even if washington is taken out our long-range strategic nuclear missile submarines, the boomers that are always out there from Kings Bay, Georgia, or Bremerton, Washington are always available and exist for that express purpose of second, second, respite, uh, second strike capability. So second strike capability is always on the table. That actually keeps us safe. And you're seeing this now with, with China uh, getting into the game on this. North Korea, by the way, is also trying to uh, to bring forth second strike capability with submarine launch ballistic missiles. That's why, by the way, North Korea is trying so hard to make submarine launch ballistic missiles because they believe that the United States or Japan or other members of, of sort of the NATO alliance, the Western alliance, is trying to take out the regime. It's about survivability for them. And so when I talk about all of these things, I just want to put everyone in that mindset that we are in a very caustic situation. And Klaus Schwab the leader of the World Economic Forum, everyone's best friend, tried to have me arrested when I was in Davos, had me detained by the World Economic Forum police at gunpoint, uh, had me frisked, had my entire film crew frisked uh, for the crime of reporting on camera, dressed pretty much like I'm dressed now, except I was also wearing sunglasses, so I'll give him that. And um, when we were in Switzerland back over the summer, and they had us detained. 
and they wanted to take our footage and they wanted to delete all of it. And they wanted us to uh, hand over our passports and everything. And we refused. He said, you can look at them, but you can't have them. And uh, he said earlier today at the G20, he said that the, that we are experiencing a, and these are Klaus Schwab's words, not mine. Okay. The leader of the world economic forum just addressed the leaders of the world. They're all there. They're in Bali, Indonesia at the G20 for this summit. And here's the words he said. He said, we are facing a global multi-crisis. That's his concept, the multi-crisis from a health standpoint, from a biological standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from an environmental standpoint. And in his response, he said, the only way that we can fix this is through a world restructuring of our institutions, a restructuring of the way that the world does business. Well, it's my contention that if you look at the fourth turning, right? The institutions are weak and, distor and, and distrusted. Institutions are torn down and rebuilt in response to perceived threats to the system's survival. That's exactly what Klaus Schwab is talking about. And so I think people have heard of Klaus Schwab's first book. It's called The Great Reset. We did a documentary, a great documentary on that with Turning Point USA. Charlie Kirk sent us over there. We did a great job putting together a docuseries. You guys can go watch that at tpusa.com slash reset. But Klaus Schwab had a second book, and that's called The Fourth Industrial Revolution. So I said this on Twitter the other day, and I'll say it now. You may not be interested in the fourth turning, but the fourth turning is interested in you. And so it's all about preparing for that, understanding that we are entering a crisis period, knowing what that means for you individually, what it means for you and your families, what it means for you as you go forward in your careers, but also understanding that un unfortunately by luck of the draw or by divine providence or whatever you want to call it personally for me, Catholic, I believe in divine providence, that that is what it is and that you were born at this time for this purpose. And so in the interest of time, I know that uh, I know you guys are only there until 630 tonight. I uh, wanted to open it up for Q&A. Just um, I'm not sure exactly how the, the logistics of that will work, but feel free to uh, ask me any question you want in terms of anything I talked about tonight, anything I didn't talk about. Um, obviously, we are here. It's a turning point event, which means that we are under nonprofit rules. So I know everybody wants to talk about the elections and all this, but, uh, you know, I can give my personal opinion, you know, in a limited sense on that, but not I uh, can't uh, can't go into as much as I normally would. Hey, sir. Uh, so in regards to the whole fourth turning idea. Yes. Do you think that uh, state, local, national government and whoever's in control of them, do you think that it'll obviously have an effect? Do you think that would be a deciding effect of however a fourth turning turns out? Well, I think it depends, right? I think it depends on the, to use the Nassam Taleb term, anti-fragility of that government. I mean, if you've got a government that's in, in total receptive mode, that's very passive, that's simply going, you saw this during the COVID lockdowns, by the way. So if you've got a state government that's willfully following whatever the edicts of the unelected bureaucrats of Washington, D.C., like Dr. Fauci say, then no, I, I don't think they're going to be much of a factor. But if you do have a strong state government that's willing to stay, stand up for those rights, whether it be uh, a Ron DeSantis uh, as governor of Florida, whether you look at Greg Abbott with what he's doing, and by the way, he just declared Texas to be in a state of invasion right now. So, I mean, again, he's, he's telling you that we are in a global crisis. He's certainly in a, in a transnational crisis there. Um, that it, it really depends on the, um, I would say, the 
constituent level of that and the construction of that state government. But I would also say that one thing that state governments absolutely need to do is, is start to hire and potentially en masse um, more, more of a statewide force for when it comes to these massive city riots that we're, you're going to see city riots again even potentially even larger than we saw in the wake of 2020 and the George Floyd riots, you're going to see those on an even more massive scale. Um, but the response to those needs to be equally massive or else it's going to completely get out of control. Hello. Um, I just have one, well, I guess, no, I just have one question. Um, sure. you that's how the fourth turning is essentially inevitable and will end in bloodshed on an 80 year cycle. Was your role in the Stop the Steal movement that undermined the 2016 and 2020 elections, and according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, your um, interactions with anti-government extremists, members of the Proud Boys and neo-Nazi um, operations, is that in order to promote a fourth turning and um, bloodshed in the United States? Well, I think it's amazing because the Southern Poverty Law Center exists to incite mass shootings against uh, against conservative organizations by doxing people like the Family Research Council mass shooting that they that they set up with Floyd Lee Corkins. When Floyd Lee Corkins decided that he wanted to murder conservatives, he went to the Southern Poverty Law Center's website. He looked up their address. He decided that I want to go kill these conservatives because the Southern Poverty Law Center says that they're evil, bad people. And so what did he do? He got their website. He got their actual physical address from the Southern Poverty Law Center's website. And he says, these guys must be evil. So I'm going to go kill them because the SPLC says so. He then went not to go and just pick up his ammunition and his firearms. Of course he did that. He also went to a Chick-fil-A. Do you know why he went to the Chick-fil-A? Sir, I believe you're- um... He went to the Chick-fil-A because he said, I want to smear Chick-fil-A sandwiches on the dead bodies of every single person that's in there. So that's what the SPLC stands for. The SPLC is also responsible, uh, we are told, for the attack on Steve Scalise, the, the attempted assassination of him when he was shot. Senator Rand Paul was there. You had a bunch of Republican congressmen at a softball game. They were all shot up there. So yes, I do think that the SPLC, as a matter of fact, is responsible more so for the fourth turning than anything that I've ever said and done. Uh, sir, I believe you're using a straw man fallacy to avoid my question. Do you, is your- Are you uh, just like looking up a list of the fallacies? Oh, that's a list of fallacies. No, I'm actually pointing out something that the organization that you're talking about is actually a domestic terrorist organization and you're using that as some kind of like legitimate source. Okay, so I will rephrase. Um, is your um, accepted um, affiliation with the Stop the Steel movement and um, other sort of anti-big government organizations, are those, your involvement in those organizations um, are you, are you involved with those organizations to promote the fourth turning? Uh, I, I would say I am absolutely involved with organizations like Turning Point USA to stop big government, 100%. All right, so thank you for hosting this too. Um, if this fourth turning is inevitable, uh, whether or not I guess is up for debate, what can someone like us, I'd say we probably have a group average age of about 20 years old. What can we do to either prepare or just take leadership in whatever things lie in front of us? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that for if you're conservative or liberal, 
you know, I would really point out that, you know, if you're going into a time of crisis and if you're going into a time of, and that's by the way, if any crisis, if I, I hope to God, I pray to God, this is wrong, right? I pray to God, this is wrong. Um, and I'd say that for even, uh, even if someone's triple mask and triple vax and has the BLM flag flying up, I don't, I don't wish harm on any of those people or anything like that, even if we disagree on something politically. But at the same time, we have seen this pattern play out over many years. And so what I would say is when you're faced with any crisis, um, you want to look to what you can control, right? When you're, whenever you're faced with a crisis, you have to look to, okay, what can I control? What's directly in front of my face? What can I build? What can I strengthen? So the first thing is yourself. You got to be healthy. You got to be, um, you've got to, you know, be strengthening yourself, both, both your mental acuity, your physical acuity. Are you working out? Are you going to the gym? Uh, are you eating right? Are you cutting out seed oils? Are you getting sunlight? Are you cutting out chemicals from your, not only your, your diet, but your daily life? I mean, I think those things are really excellent to focus on my wife. She's from Eastern Europe. So one of the things she says is, you know, when I, when I go to buy uh, the food for the family, I always look to see how many ingredients it has. And if it has more than one, you know, you know, one is the standard. And then like, I guess a hundred, like some of these, uh, some of the American foods that you'll find uh, is, is like the worst. You want to get as close to one as possible. So, so really it's strengthen self, strengthen family, strengthen community bonds, right? Find the people that you trust, find the community that you trust, and then build up that community uh, locally, regionally, whatever you can. And, you know, uh, I'm sure Charlie would appreciate if I, if I said, you know, that's one of the great things about starting and joining TPOSA chapters and working with organizations like this so that we do have a network across uh, across state lines, across, um, you know, age lines, in a sense, from from high school to college to the alumni level. So I think that that organization, you know, having that network to be able to fall on is going to be absolutely crucial if we go into a crisis period like this. We got about two more questions. Hi. Uh, so I'm doing a project on uh, creators like uh, you and other right leaning figures. And I was wondering uh, what you believe causes uh right-leaning content to attract an audience today and how it affects uh, users? Okay. Um, well, I would say that, you know, right-leaning content, it attracts users because we offer, you know, a choice, not an echo, and that we're not fungible. And what do I mean by that? That a lot of the content that you see today, whether it comes from Hollywood, whether it comes from one of these big VC-backed uh, content generation farms, it's clickbait. It's, it's your, your gruel, it's slop, it's, it's all the same, right? It's the same thing again and again and again. Like when's the last time uh, the MCU or Star Wars put out something that actually seemed new or different, right? It's, it's always exactly the same. But then when, when we come out with something and you know, not to speak for you know, all quote unquote right-wing content creators or influencers, you know, we, we try to have a look on society that is different than what the mainstream is telling you, that is different than what the establishment is telling you. And we try to come to, again, looking at the same set of facts, looking at the same set of trends that are going on, we try to pick up the other side of the story, um, whether that be on something like the effectiveness of COVID vaccines, whether that be the, the threat, the real threat of World War III, as I've spoken about tonight, which I, I hope to God obviously doesn't happen, certainly uh, not, not in, in, in any small part to the fact that my, you know, I, I have actual family members that live right, you know, right in that border area with Poland, but it's also that, that, that we're coming at it from a different angle and then also trying to, trying to put the pieces together of what's going on. Because I do think, 
I do think there's a vast amount of people out there that aren't necessarily left wing or right wing. They're just kind of they're just kind of normies, right? It's not not so much that they're centrist. They're just sort of you know they're going through life, they're going through the motions, they're trying to figure things out, and that's normal. That's that's what people are. Uh, that's what people are going to go through. I've got two little boys, and I can see them going through it already. You know, one's one's four, one's about to be two here, and at the same time. Uh, I think there's, I think with particularly the millennial generation, I guess I'm like elder millennial, you could say, and, and really with Zoomers, I think there's a lot of folks that are now looking out at society and saying, you know, this doesn't seem like it's working. These, this path that you told us to be on this whole, go to college, get a job, get married, get a house, get kids, get a retirement. Like I was talking about earlier, that it just doesn't seem like it's working the way that it's been planned. And what are the reasons for that? And what are the, what's the history of that? And I do think that that's something that we on the right in general, and I'm, and I'm speaking with a broad brush, um, it, seek to answer that question. We seek to answer the question of, of what is missing from the equation, what is missing from the conventional wisdom. And we try to do that. And, and look, you know, and, and to be clear, you know, do we always get it right? Absolutely not. And, and I wouldn't sit here and say that I've, I've gotten everything right. But at the same time, I don't think they do either. And they'll sit there and act like they get you know, they've never been wrong on anything in their life when, you know, you can point to a million different things that they've gotten wrong. So, you know, it's, it's, it's coming to it from a, uh, from a different perspective. And I think people, people like different perspectives. I think that's why Twitter's doing well with, um, with Elon Musk bringing it in and actually opening it up. And it's like, guess what? You've got the freedom to be right. You've got the freedom to be wrong. And that's one of the cool things about our system in America. Hi, uh, thank you for speaking to us today. So I was reading through your DMs with Richard Spencer that he released on his Twitter, and I wanted to know what the nature of your relationship was with him and what your interest was in Harold Covington. Yeah, I'm not familiar with whatever messages that you're talking about. I'm not really sure what what source you're referring to, but Richard look, Sp you know, there's there's somebody who comes. Well, yeah, again, that's that's someone that I wouldn't use as a source, but. Um, when it comes to people that, but, you know, there's, there's photos of people that come up to you at events. Um, you know, there was an incident at the RNC, somebody came up, they asked for a photo. Uh, I had no idea who it was is going back six years, um, took a photo. And as far as I know, that's the only time that, uh, there's any been any photo like that. As far as Richard Spencer directly, um, you can go back and go look at, at the history here that we've held, um, multiple events. Uh, where we threw him out of our event in 2016 at the Deplorable when he tried to come in. Uh, we, we rejected his tickets. We actually kicked out somebody for being anti-Semitic uh, who was going to be a performer at the event. He made some statements that we didn't like. And we said, look, you know, you're free to make those at your own event. We're not interested in having you here. That Those DMs got so big that it went up uh, all the way to TMZ, um, held events at the White House back in 2017, June of 2017, calling, um, you know, basically having a dueling rally there that's written up in the New Yorker, et cetera. So, you know, my, my history is out there for anybody to see. So have you never had any personal communications with Richard Spencer, any interest in Harold Covington? Uh, my, my personal communications have always been in direct opposition. In fact, there was one time where he, he and his little posse uh, tried to, uh, tried to square up with me outside of Trump Hotel when I was with my brother. And let's, let's just say that they backed down pretty quickly. So the DMs that he leaked where you were talking about Harold Covington's literature and the NPI ball, are you saying those are not real? I, I've, I honestly have no idea what you're talking about, and I can't, I can't see if you're holding anything up right now. Sorry. It, it's on his Twitter, and it's, he has a verified account as well, so you should check that out because it's pretty big. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure anybody can get verified now, bro. All right, well, that's time. Sorry we're out of time here. I'd um, like to thank you for uh, 
keeping your commitment and speaking to us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to do something in the future as well. Well, I appreciate it. And thank you very much to OSU and to everybody. Um, I really hope everybody had a great time. Great questions, by the way. Appreciate the hard ones. Appreciate the good ones. Some thoughtful, some not so thoughtful. But we, we absolutely appreciate it. And I'd love to make it out there in person the next time we come. So thank you. God bless to everybody, even to the trolls that came up, the trolls, the haters. Don't worry. I'm going to pray my rosary tonight for you guys, too. All right. Thank you so much for enjoying that OSU speech. I mean, I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed doing it. But before we go, and I know it's Black Friday, I want to remind you guys, you're thinking about Christmas gifts. We all know everybody's doing their specials. Well, here's the deal. You know what a great gift would be? Because we know inflation's going crazy right now. I'll tell you something. Beef, pri beef prices. Beef prices are expected to go up 15% in 2023. But I've got a way to help you with this. And I've got a way to help you help your friends and family. It's called Good Ranchers. Good Ranchers customers who use promo code POSA will experience 0% inflation on those prices all year long. How does that work? Because every subscriber, you will lock in your price for the life of the subscription. Now, if that's not enough to get you to subscribe, you can also get the Good Ranchers Black Friday offer right now. It's two free 12-ounce Black Angus New York strip steaks and two free pasture-raised chicken breasts with any order that uses my promo code POSO. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com to find the perfect box for you in their curated selection of America's best food, meat and seafood. Give the gift of zero inflation and America's best meat to yourself or someone else this season. Good Ranchers, award-winning service and quality are why they have over 7,000 five-star reviews. Remember to visit GoodRanchers.com and subscribe with promo code POSO at checkout to grab the Black Friday special. Their best offer of the entire year. Two free Black Angus steaks, two free pasture-raised Chicken breast, zero inflation, all with Good Ranchers. American meat delivered.